Hello, 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 everybody, and welcome back to yet another episode of the Nailed It Ortho Podcast. My name is Dr. Cole. Myself and Dr. Fitz started this podcast to go over high-yield orthopedic surgery topics, but you are actually in tune to a different type of episode. At the end of last year, we put out a podcast episode saying that we would kind of be expanding our team, working on different types of podcast episodes for this year. And this is actually the first of our new series or new types of episodes that we'll be launching here in 2022 called our Citation Classics. And the goal of these episodes are pretty much to go over some of the high yield or the most cited papers in a certain topic. So this may be spine, you know, foot and ankle, um, trauma, et cetera. And there are different particular topics, you know, for example, cervical myelopathy, degenerative disc disease. And the goal of this is to kind of look over the last, you know, 15 to 20 years and see what articles are the most cited and kind of give a review of these different articles and talk about them. And just so we all, you know, kind of have an idea of what people are talking about, these may serve as kind of a list of articles for people that are just new to the subject or, or trying to look at a different field or look at a different topic and study it, that you can um, be kind of versed on to what are some of the things that are, that are driving uh, medicine and different practice of these days. And this one is our first episode of the series. We have a, a, a bunch of great episodes in store after listening to a couple of them. And this one is actually from two of our newest team members, Jose and Soham, um, Soham Patel and Jose Chacon. A little bit about them too. Soham Patel is a PGY2 orthopedic surgery resident at Indiana University School of Medicine. And Jose Chacon is currently a medical student at the American University of Integrative Sciences School of Medicine. And again, this is our first Spine Citation Classics episode. We're going over cervical myelopathy. And I'm really excited for this as well as all the other episodes that we have coming. So without further ado, please enjoy this episode going over some of the high yield or the highest cited papers of cervical myelopathy over the past couple of years. Enjoy. Also, today's episode is sponsored by Convey MD. Convey MD is a podcast platform designed specifically for medical education. What makes Convey MD unique is number one, they only offer medical podcasts for medical professionals, and there are 25 channels for just orthopedics, including, of course, Nailed It Ortho. Number two, for some podcasts, listeners can view images like slides, x rays, show notes, and transcriptions while listening, and they can download content for future references. And they offer CME podcasts from groups like the Orthopedic Trauma Association. And here at Nailed It, we look forward to working with Convey MD on some future CME episodes as well. So stay tuned for that. It's a free download in the App Store, and we've included a link in the show notes. So download it today and let us know what you think. You are now listening to Nailed It, the orthopedic surgery podcast featuring Drs. Jay Fitz and Wendell Cole. Hey, everyone. Um, I'm Soham Patel. I'm a second year orthopedic surgery resident at the Indiana University School of Medicine. Um, what we're trying to get together for you today here is uh, a presentation on uh, some of the most popular papers on cervical myelopathy. Um, and we have uh, Jose with us. I'll let Jose introduce himself. 
Good day there, everyone. Uh, my, my name is Jose Chacon. I'm currently a medical student at the American University of Integrated Sciences in Barbados. Awesome. So we'll go ahead and get things started here. Um, we'll start with kind of a brief definition. Um, cervical myelopathy uh, is a term that we use to refer to neurologic impairment caused by compression of the spinal cord um, at the level of the cervical spine. Uh, and this can most commonly be attributed to degenerative cervical disease. Um, and we see it in older patients and they can present pretty variably, but often we see things uh, you know, in the history that are pretty telltale. Uh, we'll hear patients say they're complaining of uh, radicular symptoms in their upper extremities. Oftentimes they can have headaches and neck pain. Um, we can call them occipital, occipital neuralgia or occipital headaches um, from the, the muscle tightness and spasm that's associated with facet degenerative disease. Um, and then patients will also sometimes complain of clumsiness with their hands, uh, as well as issues with gait that may or may not be noticed by the patient, but often would be noticed by loved ones um, and things of that nature. Uh, and so we can go ahead and kind of talk about some of the things we see on physical exam um, that are pretty high yield. So uh, because of compression of the spinal cord and the cervical spine, uh, we see upper motor neuron signs. Um, and and these, are, these are things that result from compression of the, the corticospinal tracts uh, and the level of the cervical spine and see things like hyperreflexia, um, Hoffman sign, which is uh, when you snap the distal phalanx of the middle finger and you see a spontaneous flexion in the other fingers. Um, you can see sustained clonus, a positive Babinski test, all these things you probably remember from medical school um, as being related to upper motor neuron pathology. Um, one of the other high yield things we can see is a positive Romberg sign, which is when you have the patients close their eyes and they have problems with balance. Um, and this can result from compression of that, the dorsal column, medial luminiscus tract, kind of in the posterior aspect of the spinal cord. So just to summarize, cervical myelopathy is compression of the spinal cord at the level of the cervical spine, most often caused by degenerative disease, um, you know, in elderly patients. So we'll go ahead and get into it. Um, what we did was we used an online search database to, to find the five most, uh, most cited papers on cervical myelopathy over the last 20 years. Um, and so we'll go ahead and kind of jump into the first paper. All right, so to get things started, the first paper, um, anterior cervical disectomy infusion associated complications. This is a retrospective review uh, out of Mercer University School of Medicine in Macon, Georgia, published in the Spine Journal in 2007. Um, so what these authors looked at uh, was a series over three years of 1,000 patients, 1,015 patients who underwent a first-time ACDF uh, one level, two level, or three level um, for cervical radiculopathy slash myelopathy. They used an anterior approach and uh, the, what their goals were to report the complications that they saw in these patients. Um, of note, you know, it's ACDFs are a relatively common performed spine procedure and a majority of the outcomes are good and excellent. Um, complications are rare, um, but can be pretty troublesome uh, when they do occur. So uh, I think that was the value of this paper was was to allow um, you know, surgeons to be familiar with what to look out for postoperatively uh, to avoid any of the uh, catastrophic outcomes um, that, that could be a potential there. So like I said, they looked at 1,015 patients over three years um, and looked at their complication rates. Um, and what they found were that the most common complication rate and about 9% of patients was uh, postoperative idiopathic dysphagia. Um, so, having some hoarseness, difficulty swallowing, um, and those things were common and actually resolved in a majority of the patients by hospital day seven. Um, 
And the second most common complication that they had was a postoperative hematoma, um, which can happen, you know, from not obtaining perfect hemostasis postoperatively. Um, and of these, 5.6% of the, their patients had a postoperative hematoma, but only 2.4% required surgical evacuation due to airway compromise, um, and the rest were treated uh, via observation. So um, that's definitely something to be on the lookout for. Uh, you know, postoperatively, we always go into the PACU with these patients and, and uh, make sure we're evaluating the airway. Um, and then one of the other complications they reported, about a 3% rate, was a recurrent laryngeal nerve palsy. Um, and they confirmed this by indirect laryngoscopy, um, and, and a majority of these did resolve, uh, you know, in the long run. There was a rare complications that they, that they reported were dural tears at about 0.5% um, and worsening of pre-existing myelopathy in 0.2%, um, and a Horner syndrome, which is uh, from loss of your sympathetic chain uh, adjacent to the cervical spine in 0.1%, um, as well as some instrumentation failure and superficial wound infections also in 0.1%. So these were the less common complications. Um, one of the complications that they reported that um, you know had a catastrophic outcome was esophageal tear. So when you're doing your approach, you're to the uh, cervical spine anteriorly, you're obviously um, in between the esophagus and the um, carotid sheath. So uh, it's definitely something you always have to be on the lookout for. And of their complications in their in their thousand patients, they only had three esophageal tears. Uh, two were identified intraoperatively and repaired by a cardiothoracic surgeon. However, one uh, was not identified. And uh, the patient was complaining of some dysphagia and, you know, so they had some imaging done and, um, you know, it didn't reveal much. Uh, and then on hospital day two in that patient, they, they got chest x-ray, which showed concern for mediastinitis. And uh, they took them back emergently to the operating room where there was found to be food debris and purulent material in the, in the mediastinum. So uh, and that patient, you know, ended up um, you know, passing away from this complication. So definitely something uh, to always be on the lookout for when you're, when you're operating in the anterior neck. So what are the conclusions? ACDFs are an established treatment for managing cervical radiculopathy and myelopathy. Um, they're relatively safe and have good to excellent outcomes in most patients, but um, it is important to recognize what the, the complications could be um, as it helps recognizing them early on and preventing uh, catastrophic sequelae. All right, moving on to the next paper. So this paper is titled Degenerative Cervical Myelopathy. Epidemiology, Genetics, and Pathogenesis. This is also a review article uh, published in the, the Spine Journal in 2015 out of the Division of Neurosurgery and Spine Program in the Toronto Western Hospital in Toronto, Ontario. So what is this paper about? What the authors were interested in is uh, assessing the fact that non-traumatic non degenerative forms of cervical myelopathy tend to represent the largest cause of spinal cord compression in our elderly populations. Um, and this can result from multi multifactorial pathology from spondylosis, aka arthritis. So what they title cervical spondylitic myelopathy, CSM. It can happen from ossification of the posterior longitudinal ligament, OPLL, ossification of the ligamentum flavum, OLF, or degenerative disc disease, DDD. There's no consistent ICD-10 code at the time of this paper being published to describe this entire collection of pathologies because they tend to coexist. Um, so the authors were seeking to introduce the term degenerative cervical myelopathy as an overarching diagnosis to represent the combination of these entities um, and describe its pathogenesis, epidemiology, genetics, and risk factors. So 
one of the interesting things that they looked at were, um, you know, how this chronic and progressive spinal cord compression causes myelopathy. Um, so some of the things that they identified were uh, interruptions in the blood flow, and then some microbiologic things, glutamate excitotoxicity, and then microglial activation and, and its regulators, um, as well as uh, neuronal apoptosis, demyelination, um, and axonal degeneration. Um, so they, they did find some genetic variants that uh, are predisposing patients to more development of these conditions. Um, and these are highlighted kind of in the second point of the slide. And, and some of these things include your collagen genes, your BMP2, um, and your vitamin D receptors, which can be linked to ossification of the posterior longitudinal ligament and lig ligamentum foibum. Um, so there's been plenty of genes studied, um, but overall, you know, we know this to be a degenerative disease pathology. So here's a nice um, graph that kind of shows you, you know, the terms that they want to encompass under the DCM umbrella. So they have, you know, spondylosis, which we also, you know, refer to as arthritis, um, you know, and then the facet arthropathy, degenerative disc disease, which encompasses, you know, your facet cysts, facet uh, hypertrophy, facet instability, disc herniation, bulging, um, and then spondylosis or, you know, arthritic um, encompassing of the foramen, um, and then the non-osteoarthritic degeneration, which could be from hypermobility disorders, um, as well as ligamentous degeneration, um, and, and that encompasses kind of uh, the OPLL, OLF things. Um, and then here's kind of a nice schematic diagram. It's just a, like looking at a sagittal cut of the cervical spine and, and you can see some of the anatomy um, and some of the pathologic features such as osteophytes, hypertrophy of the um, ligamentum flavum, as well as ossification of the posterior longitudinal ligament, um, ossification of the ligamentum flavum. They're all things that they're highlighting here on this diagram to show that uh, you know, degenerative cervical myelopathy, the term that they're wanting to introduce uh, often encompasses many of those sub-diagnoses. So conclusions. Um, the overall conclusion is that, you know, degenerative cervical myelopathy can present uh, as a separate diagnostic entity as it's highly, but it's highly related and frequently man manifests in, in concomitance with degenerative disc disease, cervical spondylitic myelopathy, OPLL and OLF. Um, and, you know, there's also some congenital factors uh, as well as some genetic uh, predispositions to th some of these features. Um, and, and it's multifactorial overall. And DCM is a good way to encompass this broad diagnosis and uh, keep some homogeneity between healthcare providers uh, for the purposes of uh, diagnoses and research um, and ease of communication. Uh, the term DCM should be used. All right, I'm going to take it away uh, to Jose to present this next one. Um, for this next um, article, we'll present is titled Intermediate Follow-Up After Treatment of Degenerative Disc Disease with the Brian Cervical Disc Pro uh, Prosthesis at either single and bilateral. This is a perceptive uh, multi-center um, uh, clinical trial that was treatment for the patients with single-level or two-level uh, degenerative disc disease of cervical spine. This was uh, based out of um, University Hospital in um, Belgium. But the, mostly, but the trial itself was conducted at the Brian cervical disc prosthesis at, located at the Medtronic so far during in Memphis, Tennessee. Okay, basically, um, a little bit of background here, the interfusion of the cervical disc can lead to degenerative disc levels adjacent to the fusion due to increased stress. Uh, reconstruction of the failed interventricular disc with a function disc prosthesis should offer the same systematic benefits as decompression decompression uh, compression and fusion, as well as provide motion and protecting the adjacent level disc from the abnormal, abnormal stresses. Basically what the, the, the gap of this 
this paper was this article was to see um, what would would see the changes due to the fact of having uh, a a single level or a bi level to of um, that either will cause any kind of complications or other um, considerations while doing. So yeah, I think that I I agree. Um, you know, an important thing in the background to highlight is the standard of care. Uh, you know, for cervical disease, is, as we kind of talked about in, in the beginning, is um, ACDF or anterior cervical discectomy infusion. Um, and so that involves removing the disc material and fusing the two intervertebral levels or, you know, two or three, depending on how many levels of disease there are. Um, and what that can lead to is, is what you alluded to in, in your first point of adjacent segment disease. And that's an Im important concept in spinal surgery uh, overall, you know, either whether that be in the cervical or lumbar spine. And it's the, the idea is that, you know, when you fuse a certain level or multiple levels, uh, you know, the joints that remain intact at the levels either above and below are subjected to higher stress. So that's kind of what the authors wanted to, to, to address by, you know, looking at this, this Bryant, this prosthesis was, um, is there a way to, you know, treat cervical pathology without causing accelerated degeneration of the adjacent segments, uh, you know, to a fusion type construct. And I think that that's the value of the the motion preserving surgery, such as a disc arthroplasty. Um, so yeah, I agree with everything you said, Jose, I'll go ahead and change it to the next slide. Um, Thank, you. Thank you there, Dr. Patel there. Uh, basically for the methods is this was the study, they done a, um, it was starting in January uh, 2000, evaluating the device, single level disease, a sec second arm to the study was initiated in 2001, evaluating disease. And basically what they did was they, they determined uh, this, um, approach this prosthesis based upon two things, provide relief with neurologic symptoms and signs, as well as improve patient's ability to perform activities of daily living, decrease pain, and maintain stability and segment motion. Among some of the criteria they have listed there as part of the research, the inclusions include patients with disc herniation or spondylosis with radiopathy, aomyopathy, which had not responded to conservative treatment. And what I mean by conservative treatments include uh, rest, soft collars, physiotherapy or pharmacological treatments during the last six weeks. And among those excluded from the study include those uh, previous, had previous uh, cervical spine surgery involving using any, any other devices, axial neck pain as a solitary symptom, significant cervical and anatomic deformity and rheologic signs of instability, which is basically is translation instability of more than two millimeters, angular motion more than 11 degrees greater than the either adjacent level as well as active infections. Okay. Awesome. Okay. And basically from what they accumulate from, from the study here, it's shown that there's, since the um, inclusion prosthesis that there's been significant improvement in symptoms compared to pre-operative symptoms and neurological signs in respectful treatment level. Thus, overall, the plant has alleviated pain and improved function based on pro-operative physical examinations. And usually these are basically just standard um, range of motion and so forth, quality of life, pain scales and so forth to determine it. And of course, um, some of the complications that was reported during the study from the single level, basically uh, excavation of premier hematoma, po uh, posterior femoral without device involved to treat residual symptoms and posterior decompression to treat residual methodic symptoms. Basically, sometimes it either could be due to Sometimes due to um, hypercriability, some of bleed, um, due the led to etoma, as well as also um, uh, any move, any basically if the prosthesis itself had any kind of um, like a 
a shift or a motion change over time there that that kind of causes um, any further pains like like um, spinal cord core compression or any sort of that nature there and it causes them. And likewise, in the bilateral level, it includes excavation of the epidural hematoma, excavation of the periverticular toma, and repair of the pharyngeal tear esophageal wounds inside during during intubation. Uh, one case of CSF leak and anterior compression caused by ongoing nerve root compression. So basically, very similar to like a single level, except the the level of the complications will seem it was much more um, kind of more severe because of its nature of it, and as well as also as mentioned earlier that. These um level that the more higher levels you you uh, accomplish from these, the greater increased chance you may have um, um adjacent discs that can that can be interfered with change in positioning or the angle could be making more uh retinopathy or smongophobia that could cause any further complications. Yeah, I think that that's uh, you know well reported, Jose. I think that a couple of things to just highlight. Um, you know, obviously in their results, they looked at 103 patients uh, total in the single level and 43 in, in the bi-level. And so, um, you know, they're looking at the, the outcomes in these groups, um, but not necessarily comparing them to a control. So uh, the results we're looking at are just, you know, the reported outcomes in, in this situation of, you know, of the single level and of the bi-level. Um, so not necessarily comparing it with anything, but we can see, you know, the outcomes they reported, uh, you know, and that includes uh, the radiographic results, you know, the position of the device, range of motion, and then quality of life using some, some questionnaires, the SF36 health survey, um, and, and so on and so forth. So, uh, you know, you can see these uh, right here on my screen right here, you can see the outcomes that they reported for either the single and bi-level, um, and, and, you know, they had great range of motion, uh, excellent pain scores. Um, and, and pretty low complication rates overall uh, with this, um, you know, but this was follow-up at, you know, their intermediate follow-up. So uh, go ahead and move on to the conclusions. The basic conclusion is that, uh, as mentioned um, earlier, that the data shows that properly placed device do not mitigate and the device allows for segmented motion. Although um, it's mentioned in the, in the article that, that they want to suggest, even though this was only done at a, at a um, one-year uh, post-op, but what they recommend to do a long-term functionality. In this case, they say five years uh, to see for the check to see if this prosthesis have um, not in addition to has any effect on the adjacent levels, but also any other further complications or or any other um, um, issues with the prosthesis that could, um, for example, that could be infected or can, can go further um, complicating the, 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 the spine itself there. So that's, that's something they have suggested to see further uh, evaluate for safety and efficacy. Right, and, and so you know, that was what they suggest at the time of this paper, uh, which was in 2003. Um, you know, since that time, there's obviously been much uh, you know, more long-term follow-up in these cases uh, in, in the use of the cervical disc arthroplasty um, or, you know, the Bryant disc prosthesis has, has uh, become much more widespread. This is just, you know, one of the more classic papers um, on this topic. Um, and, and, you know, they've had good outcomes overall that kind of echo what we saw, you know, with the immediate follow-up. Um, but one of the things that I've heard, uh, you know, people say is, um, you know, as in, as we see with joint arthroplasty, like total joint arthroplasty, like with total hips and total knees, um, when, you, when you have, you know, a, a bone implant interface and in motion, uh, you know, it can lead to, 
to loosening, um, osteolysis, uh, you know, and then with a polyethylene prosthesis, uh, you know, you can have particulate wear um, and, and, you know, poly wear and the, the debris in the neck and, and you know, possibility of complications associated with that, which we may not see for several years after these have been implanted. Um, so I think that that's, that's something interesting that I've heard. I'm not sure uh, how entirely relevant that is, but just something to keep in mind as we uh, tend to advance surgical technology. Uh, so kind of keeping on the same theme here, I'm gonna move, move along to a paper that's a, a prospective multi-center randomized controlled trial um, you know, to look at treatment of persistent radiculopathy or myelopathy uh, with either single level disc replacement or single level ACDF or anterior cervical disc discectomy infusion. Um, this is uh, published in the JBJS in 2011 uh, by Dr. Sasso out of the Indiana Spine Group uh, here in Indianapolis, Indiana. So um, hometown for me. Let's go ahead and get into it. So what they wanted to look at in this paper uh, was, you know, obviously the standard of care uh, at the time of this being published was in most places an ACDF uh, for treating single level radiculopathy or, or uh, you know, compressive myelopathy. Um, you know, the, and the issue is, is that what we mentioned earlier, when you fuse a, a cervical level is uh, you get degeneration in the facets and the level above and below your construct um, in adjacent segment disease. And what comes along with that is, is further spondylosis and, and further symptomatic, uh, either radiculopathy or myelopathy. Um, and, and this leads to more operations and patients and fusion of additional, additional levels. So uh, trying to avoid that is the goal. Um, and uh, the hypothesis would be that, you know, cervical arthroplasty in the right patients is, it could be a substitute for cervical fusion, um, you know, to, to decompress uh, the neural elements. Um, so what they did was they had about 430 patients that were randomly assigned to the groups, uh, 242 in the arthroplasty and 221 in the fusion groups. Um, and, and these patients underwent surgery uh, with via either, and obviously we're, we're um, blinded to the treatment that they were receiving. Um, and then they were evaluated at, you know, preoperatively at the time of surgery and discharge, and then at regular intervals, six weeks, three, six, 12 months, up to 48 months, so four years post-operatively. Um, and then, you know, they had their specific inclusion and exclusion criteria, uh, which could be found in the paper. Um, so, you know, some of the things they looked at in this paper were the neck disability index, um, as well as you know arm pain scores, as well as neck pain scores, and then the SF36, uh, which we mentioned earlier. Um, so these were all uh, you know substantially statistically significant and higher in the the Brian arthroplasty group. Um, so you know, starting with the neck disability index of 90 versus 79%, um, as well as the neck pain score and the the arm pain score. So um, this was at their four-year follow-up, and they'd had no deterioration, you know, of, of the cervical disc arthroplasty at the bone implant interface. They didn't see any end plate changes on, on radiographs, um, and uh, they didn't have any deterioration of outcomes uh, at that point in time. So, uh, you know, what their conclusion is that the clinical improvement continued to be significantly better in the arthroplasty group um, compared to the fusion group. Um, you know, one of the things that I think is, is important is um, looking at their patient selection uh, in, in these groups. So moving on to the conclusions. So what the authors concluded in this paper is that, you know, the arthroplasty has had 
improved outcomes reported, um, as well as the low complication rates, including, you know, no deterioration of end plates um, and improved clinical, imp sorry, an increased clinical improvement in the arthroplasty group um, at four years. So, and you know, in addition, they preserved spine motion and uh, avoided the possibility of any adjacent segment disease. Um, you know, the, what they comment on is something, you, you know, we mentioned earlier is that a uh, longer term follow-up is needed uh, for any issues that may be related to bearing surface wear, um, you know, which is something that uh, is probably being looked at now. Go ahead and uh, take it to the next paper here and let Jose take, take over. Thank you there. Um, next for this next uh, uh, article would be C5 policy after decompression surgery for cervical myopathy. It's a literature review, basically compiled on available studies on the concept of post-operative uh, C5 palsy. This was written, this was uh, published on the article Spine in 2003, and this was based out of uh, Osaka University Graduate School of Medicine at Circuit Japan. Okay. The basis behind this uh, study was basically was to see that what, what is the basically the pathogen the pathogenesis as well as also the treat as well as treatment for for C5 um, palsy because there's been very little uh, prior to it there was very little uh, information about in specifically on terms of how, what was the um, pathogenesis the etiology as well as also the treatment management aspect of it they there were some they were, they had a good understanding with it but a very good uh, detail on um, listing of basically what be background information for it has is not determined. So this was the, the so having that in thought, this was the the purpose of this uh, paper to see what can be done for uh, establishing what could be done for for those with post op C five palsy. Yeah, I, I think um, that's a that's a pretty good background. I think that you know it's something important to point out is that uh, they noticed this you know in the sixties. I think they, they mentioned these authors, Scoville and Stoops, who initially reported uh, paresis of the upper extremity as a neurologic complication following cervical laminectomy. So that, it seems like that was the first time that th this was reported in the literature. And uh, these authors who were based out of Japan, um, you know, where laminoplasty is, is pretty commonly done, had noticed, uh, you know, as, as this became more widespread, laminoplasties, uh, they started seeing more of these palsies and, and they wanted to, you know, kind of characterize, you know, maybe who would get these if they could find, you know, statistically significant differences in surgical approach or surgical procedures um, and or determine, you know, uh, a mechanical pathology as to why this happens um, and whether that be uh, the, the theory of bloat back causing tension on the C5 nerve root or, you know, actually, you know, damage to the nerve root itself. And, and you know, these are all theories that, that they wanted to investigate. Um, and, you know, they also wanted to describe uh, a rate so I think that the, you know, the number that they went with, you know, you wrote about 5%, so 4.6% is what they describe it, um, is 4.6% rate of C5 palsy, and, you know, it's one in 20, that's pretty high. So I think it's also important to define the C5 palsy too. So the way that we see it postoperatively, and, and I just saw this in spine clinic the other day, actually, um, is, is weakness or paresis of the deltoid and biceps, uh, you know, both, both of these muscles get contributions in their innervation from the C5 nerve root. Um, so, you know, having weakness in the deltoid or biceps brachii after cervical decompression surgery um, without any deterioration of myelopathy. So, so indicating that there's no like central compression or epidural hematoma, uh, you know, so that would be, that would be the definition there. We'll go ahead and move along. 
Thank you for that there. Okay, basically, from what from what they have compiled in this study here, it was able to collect about 24 studies that were reviewed and analyzed that was used as part of this um of this study. It's kind of it's, it's kind of like how they did a um kind of like a systematic review, meta-analysis approach, and basically how they accumulate all the uh, prior studies and accumulate to a pretty much a comprehensive approach to to get to the better understanding of the, in this condition there. And it was basically these publishers were ranged from that was published from 1986 up to 2002 regarding regarding this uh, this this pulse off complication. So what they did was that they when they accumulated all all the, um, the all the prior studies they they uh, further divide them for basically for example for say what kind of uh, surgical approaches did for example was it from was a disc uh, anterior ACDF uh, unilateral French door was also mentioned there, as well as also what were how many cases were reported in addition, as well as in as well as incidents for each for respectful um each of the studies to indicate of C of occur C five uh, palsy occurred pulse operately. So so have, once 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 all the that uh, studies were were analyzed and and, and collected and analyzed, they determined from uh, from their results was. For what they accumulated was that basic what they found out was that as uh, dr patel mentioned earlier that there was a it was an from their analysis it was an average about 4.6 percent had had that such complication so 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 it's a fairly fairly a, a good amount of it that can occur over time there and um as as mentioned about um 4.6 percent of patients had this complication as was also uh, is generally even despite having such a palsy occurred, this complication occurred. However, their prognosis seemed to be very good for the most part. Their particular neurological uh, functions able to recover. Uh, the, the pains sometimes that would occur, but over time uh, it would it will uh, improve over time. There, although despite the, there's still uh, some cases of severe uh, cases that causes some. Per, uh, Paralytic um, complications that that requires a longer time to recover, and that's as we can see there. The some from from the studies they accumulated, the possible causes in terms of pathological uh, course in in terms of etiology includes the following: intervert injury to the nerve root during surgery, nerve root traction caused by conservative shifting of the core followed by decompression surgery, and usually that's uh, if you recall from the previous um study we talked about how we had they, that uh, can cause a depending on which um, approach was done it can cause uh, issues with the adjacent um, adjacent um, per disc and and cause some further issues there like comp uh, complication there others include spinal cord ischemia, ischemia due to decreased blood supply from radial arteries especially especially if those um if those uh, vessels has been compressed as a result of it, there, segmental uh, spinal cord disorders and also reperfusion injury of the spinal cord, especially when you, especially these usually these occur usually during uh, after anesthesia um, uh, recovery. There, oftentimes you have these uh, re these reperfusion injuries that cause high deal amount of high oxygenation that can that can cause uh, further damage of the vessel and thus affecting the spinal cord from there. Yeah, I think that, you know, and these are all 
hypotheses and I, and what they highlight you know in their discussion um is you know the most important thing is that these are all proposed and and each of them remains hypothetical uh you know there's no reliable or reproducible evidence for any of these theories um and and nobody has done any follow-up studies so uh, to kind of just summarize you know it's there's no known mechanism for this post-operative c5 palsy uh all we can say is that um, you know, what they looked at, at least in this paper, is that there's no statistically significant difference um, in, in the anterior ACDF approach and posterior laminoplasty approach. Um, but I think there is some newer research out there uh, that shows that people that get posterior laminectomies and fusions um, have, do have a little bit of a higher rate of the C5 palsy. Um, and, and again, the mechanism is poorly understood. Uh, and, and I think it's important to also talk about the prognosis uh, and treatment. So most of the time, uh, you know, they're treated conservatively with, with therapy, um, including, you know, a cervical halo, cervical traction, muscle strengthening, um, and things like that to prevent contractures. Uh, and what they found was that if, you know, the patients that had a muscle on muscle manual testing with muscle power less than two um, had a more poor recovery, uh, whereas, you know, people with an MMT grade of three or four generally had full recovery. Um, so, Overall, pretty good prognosis uh, and, you know, could manage conservatively when it does occur, but it's important to recognize and important to counsel patients um, on this as a, as a risk of, you know, cervical spine surgery. Thank you, Dr. Patel. So basically, overall, from what they, from, uh, what they conclude here is that uh, even though they, as, he, as Dr. Patel mentioned earlier, that the list of possible uh, pathogenesis of for, for the uh, C5 palsy is still is still um, it's still in its own theory a hypothesis of it, but and despite having that, there there's still yet a specific treatment has been has been shown from these studies there, and as mentioned earlier, that some of the recommendation in the study that some of the recommendation include physical therapy, muscle strength, conditioning, bed rest, halo vest, and shoulder range of motion to prevent contractors. But as mentioned, overall, still there's still no specific treatment for it, and and uh, what they have even considered to determine is that they want a more precise, uh, more studies that would look into their pathogenesis precisely, as well as also morphological changes by etiology. So we got so basically, this study has basically gave us some a good layout, a good framework for for, for um, the the causes and changes for C5 palsy, but more, as mentioned, more further studies is required to, to see from, to, uh, to be more precise on, on further, it's on his, um, treatment management and as well as also any, uh, complications. So I think that's pretty important. Um, and, and, you know, that covers these, these papers. Um, obviously we've included the, the title of the paper in each of our slides and, and that should be at least make it a little bit easier for anybody who's more interested and, and you know wants to dig in a little bit deeper to these papers. Um, like I mentioned, you know the way we picked these was by by picking the most highly cited papers over the last twenty years, and and sort sort of by default the papers that have been around for a little bit longer um, obviously have more citations. So some of these you know tend to be a little bit older from the early to mid two thousands, um, you know, but the impact is still uh, very relevant, and I think it's important to understand how things have progressed and, and where we have built our current practices on today. So um, that's going to be all for now. And I uh, just wanted to thank you guys for
listening. Um, and uh, see you next time. Ladies and gents, I really hope you enjoyed that episode with uh, Dr. Patel and Jose. I, I hope you all really enjoyed learning some more about some spine and some cervical myelopathy. Now, if this is your first time listening to this podcast, please hit the subscribe button. You can go on YouTube and actually see the video that goes along with these slides and what they're talking about if you actually want to if you're more of a visual learner but please go and leave a review let us know how much you enjoyed this episode if you have any feedback feel free to leave it at the review or you can email us at nailedortho at gmail.com and let us know how much you enjoyed learning some more about cervical myelopathy super interested to see what is going to be coming up next enjoy until next time